at its very earliest roots, opera was always really collaborative and leveraging the best of modern creativity and technologies. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Technology, innovation, interactive, disruptive. These are not terms generally associated with opera, but for Debbie Wong and her team at Renaissance Opera, these words are at the core of what they do. But how does one go from studying classical music at Yale School of Music and Sibelius Academia to creating operas in VR? For Debbie, it's simply in her nature. A disruptor at her core, she's always pushed the envelope of tradition, asking why at every opportunity. But it was the discovery of early Baroque opera and the spirit of innovation present in the early days of the art form that inform her work. In our conversation, Debbie takes us on an insider's journey through her career, from the early days of discovering that music was something you could do for a living, to how her love for video games informed her first VR project. And she shares insights into how failing doesn't necessarily mean failure. Here's our conversation with Debbie Wong. When did your love for music start? Oh my gosh, I fell in love with music as a very small child. And um, I think my first music class was when I was two or three years old um, in this in Vancouver at Place des Arts. They had this little Kodai class for little kids and we learned how to sing and dance and play little instruments. And from there, I just never stopped studying music. At what point did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah, it was funny when I was in high school, um, because not, no one in my family is a professional musician. I, of course, I'm, I come from a family of music lovers, but I didn't know that you could be a professional musician. <laughs> that wasn't really on my radar when I was in high school. Um, so I was studying a lot of sciences and it was my choir teacher, Rupert Lang from the Vancouver Children's Choir that um, partway through when I was maybe in like grade nine or 10. And he was like, well, why don't you go to school for music when you graduate? And I was like, what? You can go to school for music? Are you kidding me? And so that set, that set me on my next, my pathway out of sciences and into full music all the time. Was there ever a fear or anything from your parents? Like, are you sure this is something you want to do? Not really, but I have a kind of like funny story about, so, so I'm Chinese, um, I'm half Chinese and, um, there's, uh, so when I was really young, there's always a stereotype and this joke amongst, um, amongst my family members that, you know, you either have to play the piano or the violin. And, um, so when I was really young, my grandma bought me this beautiful baby grand piano. I was super young. I started piano lessons like shortly after I started my other music class. I was like three or four years old. I started the piano lessons. And finally, at seven years old, I was just like, I am never taking piano lessons ever again. I hate them. And my grandma was just like, you will regret this when you're older. And of course, I go to university for music. And the first thing they make you do, doesn't matter what discipline you're in, is take a piano proficiency test. I cannot play the piano. And then all I hear in my head was my grandma being like, you'll regret this when you're older. So that doesn't really answer your question. But I think there's a little bit of irony in there about my grandmother knowing that somehow piano will be important. <laughs> in my life. I'll always listen to your grandmother. <laughs> okay, so you decide you're going to um, study music. Was it always going to be classical music? It Well, I think it never occurred to me that you could study anything else or that I would study anything else because everything that I grew up learning was embedded in Western European classical music styles and cultures. Um, even though the soundtrack to the house I grew up in was my grandmother's Cantonese opera blaring in the background. So I have this like weird, if I were to redo the soundtrack of my life from early childhood to now, I would have this really interesting juxtaposition of Western European classical musics and Chinese um, Cantonese opera styles like mixed together. 
Um, so, but I, I've always loved classical music as a, as a child and I, um, and then as a young choral singer and then as a soloist. And so it was always a passion of mine. Um, and I'm not sure why I just, uh, it just really speaks to me somehow. And when did Baroque opera become important into your life? Cause it seems like that's kind of like at the beginning of this phase of your life and career yeah it's again this like um confluence of really is that the right word it's just this just this melting of of really um nerdy things that i got into as a young child so when i was <laughs> when i was seven i was at this dinner party with my parents and you know it's like a whole bunch of adults it's super boring i'm like oh i can't believe they dread me this thing and I, it was like, you know, serve yourself food. So I like load up this like giant plate of food and there, it's a, it's a garden party and I'm coming from inside going outside. But what I do instead is walk into the closed glass door and it's it just like, I'm wearing my glasses. I'm seven. The, the food smears down the window. I like cut my face with the glasses and I'm so horrified and embarrassed for myself that I like run into their TV room. And inside the TV room, there's this, uh, this like replay of a, a filmed version of Romeo and Juliet. And the person playing Juliet is Megan Follows, who was one of my favorite actors as a young child because she portrayed Anne of Green Gables. And so I see her on the TV and I'm like, what is she doing? This isn't Anne of Green Gables and it's Romeo and Juliet. And so this starts my obsession with um, early English theater and Shakespeare and all of this um, sort of like English uh, Renaissance that was happening um, in the in the 17th century, 16th and 17th centuries. And uh, so my pathway through the creative arts was on one hand, uh, 16th and 17th century English literature, and on the other hand, um, Western European classical music. And as I get to university, they come closer and closer. And I discover that there's this whole amazing musical culture at the same time as Shakespeare coming out of England. And I start studying that era of music and understanding the roots of early uh, Western European opera and studying that, um, that marriage of text and theater and music. So that's where that comes from. <laughs> well, and that marriage of, you know, various things has really shaped the artist that you are today and the creative that you are today for outsiders that don't really understand you know the opera world and where we're at can you talk a little bit about you know how that has changed from what we, we may perceive as you know classical opera where you know we might think of the Orpheum and everybody dressed to the nines and this, these giant performances mostly attended by old people like you know, walk us a little bit through that. Yeah. I, I think all of the things that you just said about opera are, um, are true. <laughs> these are, these are stereotypes or, um, uh, they're in our psyche for a reason. Um, but the, the reason I was drawn to opera was because of when it was Western European opera was because when it was created and it was, it was sort of born in the, um, in the early 17th century, late 16th century, from this collective of artists. There were like philosophers, scientists, uh, poets, singer, songwriters, uh, visual artists, all different kinds of creatives that were coming together and they were leveraging their collective creativity to innovate the art of storytelling, just storytelling in general. And at the time, like people are thinking a lot about poetry as the kind of like the, the most high art form at the time because of the way it brings text and story and all these things together. And music was thought of as a part of poetry. And so at its very earliest roots, opera was always really collaborative and leveraging the best of modern creativity and technology. So when they started creating these stories, they put them in these theaters where there's this explosion of technology suddenly being used. Um, at the time, of course, it's like, we have a pulley system that pulls a dragon into the air, which to us sounds silly. But at the time, like if you had never, you don't have electricity or anything, and suddenly there's this giant dragon flying at you out of a the theater, that's pretty cool. So I, when I really got into opera, it was that that really inspired me. It wasn't necessarily the musical style um, or the kind of forms. It was really what started it. And now as an opera artist today, I went through traditional and formal training in the classical music system. 
And I, as I went further and further along, I kept feeling more and more like, oh my gosh, this is not for me. What am I doing? What are these stories? How are we doing this? Who are these? What is this venue? What is happening here? And so I took time to reconnect with my roots of opera. And I started realizing that there's actually this rich history of innovation in opera. And the way that I was taught opera history was through the lens of of male white composers and um, thinking that this, all of this music and these ideas were coming from creative geniuses, this line of creative geniuses um, that did not represent me at all. Um, so when I looked back at a history of innovation, I started seeing all of the things that I was interested in and I started seeing myself reflected in different ways. And so I think that the opera that you described is because we have been taught and we learn about and we interact with opera in a very specific way. But the moment that we're in today is that opera is being interacted with and um, engaged with uh, or by other artists um, that are looking at the other aspects of opera, such as such as I was just talking about with innovation and stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, it seems to me like the birth of opera was really set in uh, being disruptive and innovation. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're really back at the roots of the beginnings of opera. It's almost like a re a renaissance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I one of the questions that our team is always asking and that I ask over and over again is if opera were invented today what does what would that look like like who are those creatives that we would bring from all different innovative forms of storytelling to come together leverage their collective creativity to really uh bring forward new ways of of telling stories and engaging with stories so I mean we, we've talked a little bit about you know where the idea for rebirthing what we might think of as opera. When did you make the decision to you know launch Renaissance Opera? Yeah, so I started the company in 2017, but the idea to start the company came out of a collaboration in 2014. Um, I had uh, been studying a lot of English opera, early English opera, um, and particularly Dido and Aeneas by Henry Purcell and Nam Tate. And I love this story and I think it's really interesting, but, you know, these, you know, Greek mythologies are pretty hard to uh, digest as a contemporary audience. I think they feel really far removed from our experiences today. And that story spoke to me, but felt far removed from what I was experiencing. So it was it was in 2014 um, with my colleague Chris Began that we first tried adapting a piece. I kind of thought like, you know, the early music um, police would descend upon me and like, or the early music gods would like strike me down with lightning bolts and stuff if I started blowing up pieces of work. Um, but that didn't happen. And it opened this door to thinking about these creative works um, as, and these composers and creators that are long past as co-creators and collaborators. So it's not that their works are doctrine or like that they have to be done perfectly and as written on the paper. They are suggestions of how we can uh, bring stories to life um, as new creators and collaborators. And so I did this project and adapted this story about Dido to address the issues of cyberbullying at the time. And this adapting and updating stories was really inspiring. And I, as I thought more about it and the platform that we provided and the way that we um, were able to bring in new audiences, all of that kind of came together into starting Renaissance Opera. Uh, but the underlying goals were to really create a new platform and a new way to examine what it is that we do as performers, especially in classical music and opera. And that first project, was that already kind of set in that VR world or was that but that looked totally different. I did not know that VR really existed in 2014. Um, but none of us did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, turns out it's been around for a long time. But <laughs> um, but I didn't know it. it was not on my radar at the time. But the piece, because we adapted it to be about cyberbullying and this idea of bringing in technology, like everyday technology into the experience. Um, so instead of having a story written out on a program with the text there, we had text messaging with our guests. So you came in, you put your, this would never happen today because of all kinds of reasons, but you put your number on a group text chat, um, 
And we, um, the characters on stage who are cyberbullying the main character are texting back and forth during the show. So while one of the characters is singing about her experiences and her fears and her, and her sadness and grief behind her back, all the characters are saying like, look at her, like, who is she anyways? And you're seeing the effects of cyberbullying happen in real time on your phone, but then you're also seeing how it impacts the main character. And so you're getting this new layer of storytelling and incorporating this, you know, this mechanism that we use every day to talk about everything into an art piece suddenly lets the audience look at how they're using technology and how their technology is shaping their experience of the world and affecting other people uh, in a new way. And that was a really big, you know, first seed that was planted in my imagination. And then from there, it was like, well, what about video games? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, you know, that opens the door to bringing technology into this um, art form that we don't necessarily think as a breeding ground for technology. So, yeah. like, talk a little bit about the the evolution of, you know, going from that first project where you're using cell phones in a really interesting way to, you know, maybe a few steps to where you're going to now. In the early stages of the company, I was sort of just wrestling with, like, what are we doing? And I never thought or didn't plan for the company to grow into a kind of like, you know, established organization. I sort of thought, we're just going to make shows. But as we started growing, I realized that the, you know, kind of scattered programming that I had in mind wasn't going to quite work. I really wanted to focus what we were doing. And so I, again, I went back to that question, what does opera look like if it's invented today? Not if it's reproduced or reimagined or whatever today. It's what if it is invented today? What does it look like? And so that led me to ask, like, what are those epic forms of storytelling that I love today? And the answer immediately is, of course, video games, which is my other nerdy love from childhood, which is, you know, playing all of the Zelda games. My first console was... Um, the first console I played was the the, the first like um, the Nintendo with just the A B button the this rectangle controller, but the first console that I owned was the Super Nintendo, and this was just a mind blowing, mind blowing thing to have in the house. It still is. I love video games, <laughs> and um, but but that is our to me that is like a modern day version of opera it's it's storytelling that unfolds in multiple acts and levels and it has these like larger than life characters and worlds and it captivates all of your imagination and you get to be immersed in it and part of it and you're you're in it you're invested and so i thought well what would it be like to bring video game artists and 3d artists and developers into a creative process to make opera, quote unquote, opera. <laughs> and that's how we landed in the world of virtual reality and mixed reality and all of these things that we do now. Okay. So you have this concept of, you know, the opera video game, just for lack of a better word. How do you sell that to people? <laughs> you know, I really thought it was going to be a hard sell, um, but it turns out that um, people in the video game world are also super nerdy. And when you come from a aligned nerdiness background and you say things like, I really, really want to dork out on opera right now. <laughs> It's, it's not a hard sell for some reason, um, but it, it was actually um, another funny little connection through my best friend from childhood, still my best friend, um, her, I was just, you know, we were just talking. I was like, I kind of want to do this thing. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I was just explaining to her what I wanted to do. And she was like, well, you should talk to my brother because he basically does that with his, he, he's a visual artist, Conrad Sly. But at the time, he was also training in 3D art and in learning about virtual reality and stuff like that. So I called him up and we sat down for some beers and we jammed out what um, immersive opera might look like today. And that's how we landed in the realm of virtual reality. But when we first started designing what became Orpheus VR the uh the like the oculus quest did not exist the things that existed were google cardboard um those like giant the the original rift i think and the htc like vive headset that was like i don't know five six thousand dollars very expensive like there was no we could not enter the space 
But we started designing anyways, like banking on a new headset or something coming out that would be more accessible. And about halfway through our design process, the Oculus Quest was announced and we're like, okay, this is something we can actually create for. And so, yeah, we, so we created our first little 10 minute experience for virtual reality for the Oculus Quest. There's a lot of leaps in that first project, you know, first the leap to work in the, the, the VR space, like, well, first the leap to actually make the thing and then to leap into VR, not knowing whether this was going to actually work out or not, because maybe Oculus was never going to come out, you know, and then you were going to have this project. So, I mean, is that scary? Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I, <laughs> actually my team and my staff will probably tell you, like, I have no fear. <laughs> Just I, I'm one of these, like, people who's just like, yep, yeah, let's do it. Let's jump off the cliff. And my, you know, a lot of my team's like, well, what about a bridge or a ladder? Or maybe we should look at it first. And I'm like, nope, we're going. <laughs> so, you know, I'm that person on the team. So I, you know, I always have a great team around me that like, I believe that the strongest teams are, you know, from different perspectives, have different lived experiences, can really like help see everything from, from you know, like a prism in a way. Um, so for me, I don't find these things scary. I like taking risks. I think we, um, I, the way I learn is through a constant failure. I like to fall on my face and, um, and then get back up and be like, well, what did I trip over this time? <laughs> um, so uh, to me, that's, that's the fun of it, the process and the figuring things out and, uh, you know, like, like live performance, like most things we can't know what's going to work or not, unless we put it out there. Um, you know, we can only do so much internally without um, without even more input. You touch on a couple of things there that I want to dig into a little bit more. And the first is this concept of team building and, you know, working with the team to to develop a project. And when you're working with technology that's shifting kind of like every minute, that's really hard. So can you talk a little bit about you know, building that first team um, for Orpheus VR, what that process was like for you, especially not coming from that tech space as well. Well, building the team was also a, a kind of a team effort in a way too. So I first had my conversation with my colleague, Conrad Sly, and he kind of pointed out like the other people and, and skills we would need on the team um, from a technical perspective. And, um, and so we started, and I started looking at other creators that could come in. And so we kind of together identified those people and through a series of, I want to say through a series of elegant meetings, but actually it was like a series of going to the bar and having beer together. We created this really great team of humans that, um, that really collaborates well. And, you know, a little bit is luck, I think that, um, cause I've worked on, you know, I've assembled teams that maybe don't work as well together, but, uh, this particular team, it just seems like really, um, wonderfully aligned humans. And, um, now we've been working together for so long that it's really easy. And, um, and we, there's a lot of respect and trust there, which is, um, which is really beautiful. So I think that's something that grows over time, but knowing what we're missing and knowing that we're all committed to having a diversity of perspectives and skill set, um, even though it might be from different sectors, which it was, um, was a great starting place for that. And I think for all team building really. And with Orpheus VR. So when you started in, you know, the early process, the technology was quite different than where it ended up when the project was complete. Is the project com like fully complete now? So <laughs> the way I talk about Orpheus VR or what is, you know, a lot of the work which we did there has now gone into Eurydice Live from the Underworld is that we set up a world and we set up a big creative world where we wanted to reimagine um, this myth between Orpheus and Eurydice. And we chose that myth because it the first Western European opera was the Orpheus story set to music and text. Um, and so we wanted to riff off of that and use that as the inspiration for this project. Um, so we created a very fantastical mythological world that we decided we were going to play inside of. And so everything that we do inside of that world is part of that mythology that we've created. So Orpheus VR was a virtual reality video game experience about 10 minutes long that lives inside of that universe. And, um, when we, after we created that first piece, we got a little frustrated with 
creating for virtual reality because we couldn't fully realize the visual aspect of what we were dreaming of. And I think that continues to be a challenge. I, I know there's a lot of big advances, but, um, but you know, when you're used to playing on a PS4 or PS5, and then you go into a portable mobile headset, that visual quality that you get on your console is not the same. And so we we're always wrestling with that. And, um, and again, my, you know, my method as a leader or whatever is always to be flexible and to play to the strengths and desires of the team. Um, and so the team really wanted to like be able to really showcase their skills. So we shifted staying inside of our story world. Um, we shifted to uh, live performance. Um, and so using a lot of the assets that we had built for Orpheus VR, but up upgrading them for a live stream experience. And, um, and that came from us recentering our values with the project in general. And one of the things we realized that makes us special and unique is that live performance aspect. And when you're in the headset for Orpheus VR, you are seeing a performer because um, we motion captured and facial captured everything. So it's a real performer's data that's being used, but it's not being performed live. It doesn't have that same live performance um, magic in it. Um, and so we were we were wondering, well, what would it mean to take what we've done and translate it now into a live performance? Um, and then the third iteration was um, Eurydice's Calling, which is a hybrid experience. It's meant for an in-person audience and an online audience. It does both. So that's sort of like the realm that we're living in these days. <laughs> but it's, you know, we've it's all these seeds that have come from Orpheus VR. So, so, I mean, even though the the original concept for Fist VR might be complete, it really is at the center of everything that you guys are doing now. Yeah, yeah, the characters are still there, and you know, I, we we're we're now building out a full um, a full length immersive theater show called Eurydice Fragments, and um, on a meta level, it's because we have all of these little pieces of this Eurydice story that we've been telling for many years, and we want to see what it means to bring them all together into a theatrical experience. So that's our next iteration, but, um, you know, the story world, the team, the creativity behind it, the years of testing and failing and succeeding and all the ups and downs, the characters, they're all still there in different iterations and some things still the same. And, and talking a little bit about technology and you, you touch a little bit on the various aspects of things that go into creating uh, your shows like motion capture what else goes into your shows that we might not even realize? <laughs> the most chords you've ever seen. Um, no, but <laughs> it, it's funny because I, you know, when I came to, you know, I think it was, I guess, 2017, 2018, that I first started having talks about these things, knew absolutely nothing about building a video game, like zero things. Um, and so over time, I've slowly learned, um, you know, how we do these things. I'm still pretty lost a lot of the time, but, you know, we're using video game engines, um, but alongside, you know, traditional or, you know, tried and true historical um, theater practices. Um, and we're using things like motion capture, but it's all done in real time. So it's happening live. So when you're seeing like an animated film, that's using motion capture, you're seeing something that's like really cleaned up and finessed so that it just looks perfect. That like, you know, we get lots of compliments on how well our avatars move and how seamless and clear they look. And a lot of people can't believe that it's live. Um, and that's because we, yes, we are using like high-end motion capture technology, but we're also using a contemporary ballet dancer who's been training her entire life to know how every single fiber in her body moves and reacts to things. So she's analyzed how the avatar can and cannot move. And she knows that if she puts her elbow, you know, a little too high, the arm's going to do something weird. It's not going to look great. So she's, you know, it's this really beautiful combination of great technological tools, but even better performers that really understand their craft and their bodies and their art form and them being inspired by those tools and then being able to shape them to amplify their creativity and their unique practices. And so I think that's like the key to what, what we do is that we're using cool tools. However, it's the artists and how they use them. That's really, um, that's, that's the innovation. <laughs> And I mean, you started this entire project before, you know, there was a whiff of a pandemic or before we knew that the way that we consume things as a, as groups was going to change. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected what you guys do? 
It that's it's such a strange thing to talk about because it in some ways we were really lucky that we had started talking and thinking in this way. It's not because I was being clever <laughs> um, or that like, you know, I think regardless of a pandemic, our technology was moving in this direction. And maybe what happened with the pandemic is things got accelerated because we had to really rethink what we were doing. And so because we had started thinking about that before this acceleration happened, um, we were prepared in a way, or we were already in that in that mode. And what the pandemic did was give us all a little bit of time to really focus in on this work that we were doing that didn't have to be in person. Um, our team has always worked remotely. Um, we, we have learned that when we're actually making a show, it's way easier to be in person and in the same room together. However, at the time, we were just building things remotely, um, riffing remotely. And so it provided us the opportunity to have the, the time and space. And um, at the time, also the financial support to do those things. Um, because suddenly, uh, there were, you know, we're a publicly funded company, we're a nonprofit, we, we have a completely different business model than any other creative studio you probably come across. So we, we were lucky that the different funding bodies um, were supporting digital creation and innovation at the, um, because of the pandemic. So I think we just, we, we were just in the right place at the, a bad and wrong time. Just looking around, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of other groups doing what you're doing. You you really are at the forefront of this new version of opera. <laughs> Whatever we're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's interesting. I see um I'm seeing a lot more theater groups and and there are lots of interesting projects that have used motion capture and stuff that we've done before too. So I don't, I think what's unique about our work is that our team has been consistent and it's not a one-off project. It's that we are really taking this time to churn out, you know, we consider most, all of the things that we've done to date as prototypes really for like something bigger that we're building. And this, this theatrical show that we're building feels like this will be a landing place for us. I think like that we've had this team prototyping and working together for so long has really allowed us to create really really strong work and to create something that's unique to our team. Um, and so that kind of makes us, it feels like we're at the forefront of something in terms of like, you know, traditional or um, status quo or whatever opera companies. I think it's a challenging thing to uh, adapt to new technologies or to even consider bringing new technologies in. There's lots of barriers there. So I see a lot of cinema adaptions of operas um, but not a ton of what we're doing. Is it a hard sell? You know, we you, you mentioned that that could, can be difficult for traditional opera companies to break that barrier of technology. But what about fans? How about lovers of opera? Is it hard to sell them on this concept? Our target demographic is a much younger audience. Um, it's, you know, people like us who like video games and, you know, have, have lives online, but also in person. We see that reflected in our audiences. Our audiences are a lot younger than the people going to opera and they come and they think like, this is opera? Cool. I didn't know that opera could be like this. But at the same time, when we do our audience tracking and we gather audience data, it's actually split right down the middle. Our target audience is coming, but the same amount of people from a more traditional and formal opera crowd are also coming to, to our, our shows. And um, when we opened, we run an annual festival called Indie Fest every year. And we opened last year with the first version of this hybrid show that we're creating called Eurydice Fragments. And the crowd was so mixed. There were kids, there were people who were like 95 years old. There were people who had no concept of what opera was and people who love video games. And there are people who have been to every single opera that's ever been produced in Vancouver. And it was an incredible mix of people. And the, the crowd went completely wild at the end of the show. They were just, everyone was so excited about what was happening. And my favorite thing was that there were two kids that came up to me after and told me how cool they thought the show was. And they're really excited and they wanted to know about the characters. And then right after the kids came up to me, there were these two people who came up and this one woman introduced herself. She told me she was, I can't remember, it was like 92 or 93, 94 years old. And she said, I wanted to know what the future of opera is going to look like. I travel around the world. I go to all the big opera houses, seeing all of the shows I've done it my whole life. And I really wanted to see what the future is going to look like. And now I'm so excited. <laughs> so I was like, wow. <laughs> At the same time, it is hilarious how often we get told that's not opera or how like, you know, sometimes I 
feel like I'm the weird kid in the corner. But the point is not to say that this is going to displace anything or that that only one, the point, the whole point is to say that not one expression of any art form should exist. There should be many expressions alongside each other. And that only strengthens all of our creativity and our artistic sectors. You know, the more we diversify and, and open things up, the more people that will engage. And at the end of the day, that's to me what art is. It's about bringing our communities together to, to interrogate and question what's happening in our world and to collectively to collectively wonder where we could go or to embody new ways of being in the world. And if we only present one thing in one way, then how can we possibly engage more communities? You know, the barrier to entry for the the audience, what does your hybrid show look like and how do you go about ensuring that everyone that attends, whether, you know, they're really familiar with technology or maybe they don't know anything about it, can interact with the performance? We tested this in a really small way just to see how audiences would react. And then when we did the show at our festival, we had done a little test on it. So we originally took all of our video game assets and our characters, our environments, and we um, just streamed out a live performance over YouTube Live. So what you were seeing online as an audience member was our our animated and our, our computer-generated world. And the interaction the audience had online was to be able to um, vote on different narrative things that could happen in the story. So you would get a poll and you'd say, yes, I want the character to do this. No, I don't want the character to do this. And democracy, most votes wins. And people would chat online and chat with us. But then we decided, well, what would it be like to have an audience in the studio with us? And so we had about 10 guests come to the Sawmill Motion Capture Studios and watch us do what we were doing, but also online, like have a... TV screen to see what's going on online as well. And this was really well received, like being able to see the technology working and then seeing what's being created virtually, digitally was uh, people, that was what people were excited about. They're like, yeah, what you're doing is cool, but this is cooler. (laughs) The fact that we can see both. And we're like, oh, okay, there's something here. So then what we did was we brought this to the theater. And so the way that people know what's happening is they can see it happening all in front of them. We put our, what we call the brain bar out on the stage. So you can see all 12 of our computers. You can see all of our technicians, including myself, like pushing buttons and waving our arms around and doing stuff. Um, And then you see our dancers in their motion capture suits on stage performing for you. You see our singers standing in front of their iPhones, like to do the facial capture. And then you see uh, way above you on a giant sort of like cinematic screen, how that's all coming together in the virtual world. So there's, there's no barrier to entry really anymore is you just come in you watch the show and you see the technology working and what's happening um, virtually. And again, people really liked being able to see these things happening in real time. And our next level of interaction is going to be uh, finding a way for the audience to feel like they can still contribute or choose narrative pathways because that was well received um, on our YouTube thing, this leaning in and being an engaged audience member. So that's coming up next as we continue to refine what's what's fun about the show. Seeing the behind the scenes, you're pulling back the curtain on the magic. Exactly. Which is like one of those weird things because you go to theater to see theater magic and not know and and wonder what it is. But because everybody knows that we have fancy computers and tools that do things, being able to see the magic happening makes it more magical. I don't know how that works. You've had a lot of training in classical music and you touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about how that training and what you learned has impacted how you work today and and the decisions that you make and how you lead your team? Yeah, I would say that it's funny. I have such complicated feelings around my training. Um, In, in some ways I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm so fortunate for the training that I've had. Uh, But at the same time, I also feel like I was always in conflict with the way that I was um, taught um, and being taught. And, uh, and this kind of, Right on through to the very end of my doctoral defense, where I was still in conflict with my with my jury and my advisors, um, because I feel like I'm just constantly misunderstood, and I'm naturally a disruptor. You know, I try to say like I 
you know, peace and harmony all the time, but I am a disruptor. I'm, I'm one of those people that's like, well, why are we doing it that way? Did anybody ask why? Did anybody answer? How come? <laughs> and so I really like, I'm curious. I want to ask questions. I want to know why. And I want to know like what's next. And so that, that was not great. That kind of personality trait and mentality was not great in a classical training system that, you know, has deep, deep roots in the 18th century where things have been done a certain way. We train in a certain way for a certain reason, blah, blah, blah. So I was constantly wrestling against that. At the same time, you know, I, I was very fortunate to go to some really rigorous musical training programs and it created this, or it embedded this, I don't want to say work ethic, but this really, uh, this understanding of how, how the voice works and how we create and different forms of creation. And it, as much as it told me what I didn't like, it told me what I did like as well. And having a formal structure, even though I went in with the clear intention of breaking through those structures, having that structure and knowing that there's a line helped me gauge where the boundaries are and what it means to go. And if I've crossed the boundary. And so I went into a lot of these things saying like, yeah, I'm going to find what's on the other side of that boundary. That wasn't great for my teachers and the programs I was in, but it was great for me as a learning and a gauge of like, have I really pushed into new areas and have I really like broken down silos and brought things together? And um, have I really leveraged the best of this person's creativity and innovation? And yeah. And so I, I think it was a, it was a double-edged sword for me. I mean, that was clearly always in your nature, but it's hard to, you know, as a student, it could be difficult to, to push to, and to know when to stop. On a practical level, how did you learn how far you could go? <laughs> well, this is where this failure piece comes in. So um, I just finished my doctoral studies um, at Sibelius Academy at the University of Helsinki. And I went there because they have a different structure. Um, they basically, to complete your doctorate, you have to do five different performance projects that are supported by written works. And then you do one sort of like dissertation style paper at the end. So it's actually, and then a lecture recital. So it's like a kind of amalgamation of PhD and musical, doctor of musical arts in North America, all in one thing. Um, but they have this incredible facility that has multiple different performing arts halls um, for all different kinds of music creation. They give you a production team, lighting designers, resources to hire. So you really get a canvas to explore your creativity. So I went in there and my plan was um, to explore Shakespearean theater and, um, and music and what does that mean? But I ended up creating a first performance, which was everything that I knew to date about my classical music training, including how I was supposed to walk on stage and perform and do all the things and how I was supposed to create a program to demonstrate what I knew at the start of my program. And I ended the program um, doing a fully improvised performance that incorporated all different music with soundscape, immersive soundscape, um, really, you know, out there lighting design and staging and multi-platform <laughs> storytelling. So I really went on a journey. And it was funny because at the start of my studies, my jury was like, this is amazing. We love your work. It's going to be so great. There's a few things you should work on, but this is great. And then in the second performance, they were like, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we, we weren't sure about one thing, but we brought in this other jury member because he knew a little bit more about where you were headed. And then in the third performance, they're like, okay, well, this is a little bit much and you might fail the next one. And then on the fourth one, they were like, okay, well, you would have failed this one, but there was this one saving grace. And then on the fifth one, they were like, you fail. <laughs> so I was like, I found it. I did it. <laughs> And I remember this conversation with one of my advisors and I was like, I don't, I think you're not understanding me. I don't care if I fail. I was like, if I fail, I will learn something. If I do not fail, I'm going to be stuck in this one mode that I've been taught for 20 years. I've been doing things this way. If I don't fail, how will I know that I've changed that or that I've trend like moved beyond that? And now today it's funny because I activate all those different modes of my performance practice. I just sang a, a Bach B minor mass in New York City with colleagues that I went to school with 15 years ago. We did this beautiful with a fully Baroque orchestra, like some of the best players in New York City, singing this very formal piece that I've known for many, many years. 
Um, and then the week before I sing on the, the opening of the TED 2023 conference with this new opera that was co-created by humans and AI. <laughs> and then this week I'm working on our Eurydice Fragments project where we're getting into how do we bring interactive sound to audiences? So I think like this myth of like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none is such a funny concept and I rebel fully against it. I think that, <laughs> I think we really can uh, play to all of our strengths as artists and creators um, and as humans. And so, yeah. <laughs> I love it. You're fully immersed in so many aspects of technology. What is still the most challenging part for you? If I'm being just straight up and honest, being a woman of color. <laughs> That is the hardest part of everything I do every single day. It's not the tools. It's not learning how technology works. Um, it's not. It's it's not building a concert, producing anything. It's the barriers that you face as a woman of color. Um, and of course, there are folks that face even more barriers than myself too. So, it's that uh, finding that that the right people to support and the networks to be a part of and finding that, um, confidence in myself that I, um, believing in my ideas and not having to be validated by people in spaces that were not ever designed with me in mind <laughs> and programs and training programs. Um, and, and also, um, knowing that myself being in these spaces, um, and creating these works also lets other people like myself um, see themselves represented in that space too. Uh, and so finding that balance of not getting completely overwhelmed and knowing that there will be broader impacts um, and, and knowing who to lean on when I do come up against uh, challenging situations. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, that's a, maybe a heavy answer, but it's, it's the truth. <laughs> Well, but this leads actually into my next question, which was going to be, you know, your passion for creating a space and opportunities for underrepresented people to enter the opera space and the tech space now, because you are doing both. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the ASL project that you were working on or, the, or that you worked on, because that was also really interesting. And, you know, you allude to that with, with your previous answer. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, it's challenging for you and now you're making opportunities for others that may have not had those opportunities, but that's still really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So actually, so I should say that with that, with the ASL project, um, so that opera is now called Caustic Effect, and it's uh, co-created by Landon Krentz and Monique Holtz and Jules Dameron. And um, it was Landon that came to me first. And um, and when Landon first came to me, I, I immediately was like, I can't produce this. Like I have I'm not the right person for this. I don't know anything about deaf culture. I'm fully ignorant to all of these things. Um, and Landon was explaining about Landon's life and what, you know, what they're thinking about. And I, I, it was just, I was hearing, hearing <laughs> this is like part of like ableism and, you know, like the language I use, like all of these things, I was getting this information for the very first time and had not thought about any of these any of these experiences of, of people um, from the deaf community. And so at the same time that Landon had come to me, um, another colleague um, who is a, was an early career um, artist uh, who is um, who is from Denaday. So she also came to me at the same time asking to help advise on a project. And I had the exact same reaction. I was like, I can't, I'm not the person for that. I can't do that. Like, how am I, I, I know nothing about, your lived experiences. I know nothing about your culture. I know nothing. And I, I had this like very strong reaction and they both separately, cause these are completely separated projects, both came to me and said, do you understand what you're doing right now? And I was like, nope. <laughs> and they're like, you, we came to you because you're the only person we know to come to. And I was like, and if you shut us down, then every, there is nowhere else for us to go. So yeah, maybe, you know, nothing about deaf culture. Maybe, you know, nothing about my indigenous culture. Maybe, you know, nothing about these things, but I felt safe enough to come to you to ask you how we can do this because we know that you're there. And I was like, 
oh God, like I did the thing. Um, <laughs> they're like your perfectionism and your like whatever it is that you're thinking of does not serve what you said you were going to do. And so that was a really big wake up call for me. And, um, you know, for as much as I had said before that I like, I I'm willing to embrace failure. Um, this was a totally different mindset of disrupting. Like I have to do things perfectly and, um, I have to, you know, I, I have this very clear idea of what it means to engage with something. And so, uh, it, it was, they weren't asking me to produce their work and, uh, make it into the, you know, most perfect thing of all times. They were asking me to learn with them. Um, and because I was bringing a different body of knowledge than what they had, there was a trust there to exchange and share that knowledge and an understanding that we will all make mistakes, but the mistakes are part of it. And they're not the point. Um, the point is getting uh, ourselves and getting other artists into, into these creative spaces and finding ways to build spaces where all artists and all people can come with their full agency and creativity to a place and feel empowered to tell their stories. And so um, where I've landed today is very much a result of these artists who uh, I met with my own, you know, on, on like, uh, like my own biases and unknown, um, unknown, you know, colonial patriarchal practices and them having the grace to point that out to me and then still saying, so now let's do this. <laughs> You're constantly innovating and pushing boundaries and taking risks. And this is clearly embedded in your nature and who you are. Not everybody is in that same position. What would be some advice that you would give folks about taking risks and about putting themselves out there, even if it's really scary and failure is might, might well be the final result? I genuinely think there is no such thing as failure. There's just movement through our lives and, um, and through our creativity and, um, through our experiences and how we choose to, um, express ourselves creatively, creatively at any given moment is a direct reflection of all the things that are, you know, coming to us and are a part of our experiences. Um, and, when you, when I'm looking back on the things that I've done, I don't see mistakes. I see snapshots of my process and evolution and revolution and all the things. And, uh, this, this constant churning that's happening, um, for myself as a human and as an artist. Um, and I'm so happy to look back and to, to see, uh, to see something that has many different angles and notches and <laughs> rough areas and shiny parts and, and not just, you know, that perfectly polished stone that I thought I was, I was going to churn out after going through all my formal education. But I think that's, that's still scary. Um, and there's, I think there's a, a trust and a, in one's own creative instincts that comes over time and with age. But I hope that, you know, I can empower people to find that trust in themselves earlier than I did. And that was our conversation with Debbie Wong, founding artistic director of Renaissance Opera. You can find out more about Debbie and her work at reopera.ca. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.